You can see certain leaders just getting better and better and better, sometimes by the day, in this extraordinary, difficult, calamitous, and potentially redemptive moment. That was Nancy Kane, a historian, Harvard Business School professor, and guest today on Beyond COVID, an IBJ podcast that's about getting your company to the other side of the coronavirus crisis. The podcast is brought to you by James Allen Insurance. I'm Leslie Weidenbetter. Nancy Kane did a deep dive into history's most outstanding leaders and what they tell us about the qualities of leadership for her book, Forged in Crisis, The Making of Five Courageous Leaders. What she's learned is that leaders aren't born, they are made. They are made through solving everyday problems, but also through crises. So Nancy talked with me about how business owners and managers can use this pandemic to develop the skills that will lead their organizations out of the COVID crisis and on to better things. Then I'll talk with IBJ reporter Susan Orr about the newest round of paycheck protection funding and what it means for small businesses. Here's my conversation with Nancy Kane. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Leslie. So Forged in Crisis is your book, and I wondered what inspired you to write it. A combination of both personal and professional motivations. The, the personal is probably more important. I was working on a Harvard Business School case about Ernest Shackleton, this Antarctic explorer who literally made the impossible possible by rescuing his crew when the ship sank off the coast of Antarctica in 1915 and keeping them alive for two years before he could get them home safely to England. And I was so struck by that story and interested in then crisis leadership. What does it take for someone under such pressure and with such high stakes to to make the impossible possible. And as I was working on this, this detective story in history, my life started falling apart in big hunky blocks. My father died, my mother collapsed. A couple months later after that, my husband, who I'd been married to for 14 years, walked out completely unexpectedly. I got cancer, then I got cancer again, then I got divorced. It was just, it was just a, a really difficult four or five years. So I found myself struggling in calamity and ended up just late at night when I couldn't sleep, reading a little bit of Lincoln's writing, starting off with a little bit and then getting more and more interested in how Lincoln led through not only the astounding slow burn, shock and awe of the Civil War crisis for years, but also how he did that while he had so much personal sorrow and difficulty. I didn't see it at the time, but those two pieces, the Antarctic Explorer and the phlegmatic and calculating and morally serious, increasingly morally serious president were the beginnings of a book. It just took me a while to realize that. Long, long while. And I have heard you say that leaders are not born, they are made. And I know that's something you explored in the book. Did you come to that conclusion while writing the book, or did you start with that hypothesis? No, I, you know, we historians are, we're not really like scientists. We're, we're, we start very inductively. We don't, we're, we're social scientists. We don't have, most of us, a theory. We have a question. In general, if we're good at what we do, we're pretty open about how that question might get answered, and you go, you dig into the sources. It really is detective work. I hadn't really thought about it, Leslie. You know, it, I didn't study I didn't study leaders per se until about 2001. I studied entrepreneurs, who some of whom became leaders. But then the more I got 
I got interested in how people lead themselves in crisis, how they change in crises, and then what impact that has from inside the leader out on the larger situation. The more I became, it became very, very clear to me that leaders are made. Some of it, you know, the experience matters, nature matters, but these crucibles, when you know, all hope is lost and you don't know how in the hell you're going to navigate to the next point, much less through the storm, turn out to be these amazing greenhouses, these incredible classrooms where a whole lot of leaders get a lot better quickly. And that's what I became so interested in studying, that alchemy, what we could learn from leaders making themselves better, not shrinking, not, you know, withering, the opposite, right? Stronger, bigger, more expansive and, and, and resilient. And, and then what we could use from how they did that for today, because I'm just like a pragmatic magpie. I learn things and then I bring them into my work with MBA students and undergraduates and then executives, all kinds of folks, government leaders. So it was really clear to me after about 10 years of work that leaders are made. I feel like this is especially important right now. Your book was published a couple of years ago, is that yeah. right? Card cover was 2017 and the paper followed the next year. And it seems like there really has never been a better time to talk about this than right now in the middle of a crisis. It's so interesting. I said to my, my editor at Scribner's, we were just two years too early, Rick. I never, you know, I, I, I've been studying crisis for 20 years now. And I, I tell you honestly, Leslie, I never, ever in my farthest stretches of my imagination expect to live through this kind of turbulence, at this speed, with these stakes, across the breadth of the COVID-19 and now the economic, if you will, crisis that's all twined, all twinned up with it. The economic crisis is something, obviously, that we're going to be facing, I think, for some time. And so many business leaders are out trying to figure out what to do. What can they learn from this idea that they didn't have to be born with the, with the ability to lead through a crisis. They make a pact with themselves. You say, I'm going to get better. I'm going to raise my game. So in the middle of the Civil War, it's the end of 1862, when the Union fortunes, the military fortunes of the federal government were at a low ebb, not the only one, but one of a number of low points in the course of the war. Lincoln said during his annual message to Congress, he said, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. As our case is new, so we must think anew. We must act anew. And then we shall save our country. And that understanding on an individual level that I am going to do what it takes. I'm going to raise my game. I don't know exactly how, but at each challenge, with each you know log falling in my path, with each huge problem I have to solve, which is the life of all kinds of leaders right now, I'm going to find it within myself to do what I need to do and, and think anew and act anew. Or as Shackleton said, the explorer, once the ship went down and they're just in tents on this floating iceberg without any communication, any hope of survival, he said, a man must shape himself to a new mark the minute the old mark goes aground. So when we get to crisis, leaders need to say, I can do this. I don't know exactly how, but I'm going to do everything I can within myself to raise my game. And that, that begins a process of improvisation and reflection and self-awareness and emotional discipline, a lot of discipline involved here, that starts to create a virtuous cycle of making. And you can see that now in the field of leaders. You can see certain leaders just getting better and better and better, sometimes by the day, in this extraordinary, difficult, calamitous, and potentially redemptive moment. 
I assume that for most leaders, this isn't a process that's going to start right now. I assume it probably started with smaller problems that they've faced over the years. Yes, I think for the vast majority of leaders, Leslie, you're spot on. And that's useful, right? Crises are defined by chaos and uncertainty and imperfect information and inadequate information and constant change. So one of the, the interesting things that happens in a crisis is that leaders, having experienced other moments of difficulty, especially unexpected difficulty, you know, go into their memory library, so to speak, pull a particular experience off the shelf and say, hmm, here's what I learned there. Here's what I did there. I wonder how that might apply here. So those experiences that leaders have right, are very important in helping them raise the level of their game and respond, not only to the practical challenges, but to the intangible challenges, including managing their followers and their team's energy, you know, keeping a pulse, a finger on the pulse of morale, et cetera. So I think a lot of it is in people's experience set, but there is an element, and particularly with certain people, I don't think these are the majority of leaders, but I've now seen a number in my experience, past and present, where they're just, they just turn out to be good at crises. So Shackleton had this explorer I've now referenced, he had failed many more times than he succeeded in terms of his pursuit, his exploratory career. And then he gets into this unbelievably difficult situation and like he grows 10 feet tall and he does it consciously, intentionally, but then it just keeps happening. And I can see that happening with a few people right now on the political stage. And it's fascinating to watch. These are not people with storied track records of courageous leadership who are suddenly in this moment, unprecedented in some respects, becoming that. So most people, yes. And then a few people, a few outliers who turn out to be made for crises, I think. What are the first steps someone should take, a business leader should take right now if they just are feeling overwhelmed? Well, a couple of tools for the toolbox. First, give yourself permission to be comfortable with all this ambiguity and all this confusion and all this chaos. Relatedly, give yourself permission to say, I don't need a GPS turn by exit by turn again kind of map to get out of this because you can't have one. You're going to navigate point to point and you're going to steer toward the star initially that has you know, fewer waves and lower speed winds around it. And then when you get to that star, assuming you're, that, that that voyage goes all right, you're going to tack to another one. You're going to navigate through this point to point. And you're going to make mistakes. So third, give yourself permission to make mistakes. Pivot quickly. Don't spend a lot of time blaming yourself or lots of people. No time for that. Learn. We like to say in crisis management circles, learn forward, learn from it, pivot and move on. Second related thing to do right away is communicate regularly and at regular intervals and on the same channel, so to speak, whether it's a Zoom town hall meeting or a podcast or a, a large call, communicate regularly, like FDR's fireside chats, with your people. Last, if you will, you know, kind of essential early steps or early tools. When you communicate, every great crisis leader is offering a ineluctable, completely bound up combination of brutal honesty. Here's what we face. Here are the challenges. If you're a mayor or governor, here are the numbers, for example, right now. In the the case of a CEO, here's what's happening to business. Here's what's happening to our clients. Here's what's happening to our our capacity, our production or our service provision capacity. The, The brutal honesty of the difficulties and a response to those challenges. Not a perfect response because you don't have that luxury. But what are we doing to deal with this today? People want to hear the truth. 
but it has to be twinned with what I call credible hope. And this is Winston Churchill saying, you know, in 1941, the news from France is very bad. And then going on by the end of the speech to talk about resolve and unity and cohesion. And we will fight on the beaches because we will all do our part to keep the Nazi evil from our, you know, our, our island. So the credible hope piece is about what people are doing, what his followers or team, the team, the job we're doing, the intangible resources we bring to deal with that from strength and resilience to courage and conviction and integrity to following orders in the case of all these stay-at-home advisories, which are critically important, and the, the ability to give people a sense that we're in this, we can't see with perfect clarity the next you know, eight, eight months or eight weeks, but we will get through it. And we have gone through other difficulties before. So you have to paint a picture of the future as part of that credible hope. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is IBJ's Beyond COVID podcast. As you work your way through the pandemic crisis, would your business be ready if this happened again? James Allen Insurance offers comprehensive and customized pandemic coverage for business, including recovery of lost revenue. Learn more at jamesalleninsurance.com. Now back to our conversation with Nancy Kane, a historian and professor at the Harvard Business School, who has written the book Forged in Crisis, The Making of Five Courageous Leaders. So I'd like to go through those one by one, if that's okay. Sure. Great. You started with the idea of giving yourself permission to be okay with some chaos. Talk about that a little bit. It sounds like it's almost like you just have to take a step forward and then take another step, you know, instead of doing one big, great big thing, but just take it a little piece at a time. Absolutely. And, and, and your days, as every one of your listeners knows, all your, the executives that listen here know, are now a series of knots to untangle. Some of them are you know, larger than others, but all of them have some kind of urgency behind them. And they're just coming at business leaders like crazy. So your job isn't to untangle them all and then somehow knit some beautiful tapestry from all these tangled up skeins and threads and, you know, bits of yarn. Your job is to just untangle the one in front of you and then untangle the one after that and then untangle the one that's related to the one after that because sometimes they come in these kind of twinned knots like jewelry all knotted up in frustrating ways. So your job is to do that and say, this is my job. And it's different. It's very different than the way my work was in, in January. And that's okay, because this is a, an unprecedented moment, and it demands everything I have and everything my team has. And so to move, give yourself not only permission, just move into that. And is it frightening, and is it destabilizing, or is it unsettling? Absolutely. Because one, it's very different than the way we were working in, you know, in January. And, and two, there's just a lot of fear here, a lot of economic fear, a lot of medical fear. Everyone has higher levels of anxiety and stress. That means you have to be able to eat well enough, sleep enough, get some time away from your devices. I recommend leaders take two 30-minute moments in whatever form that takes away from the devices so you can clear your head, recenter yourself, recover with your family because you're also leading them, and, and get, some, get some space, get some mobility because walking or some kind of movement in the body from Charles Darwin to Abraham Lincoln to Steve Jobs, leaders benefit from walking around or taking a run. So 
get yourself what you need every day to stay grounded and stay focused, right? That's job number one, because if you fail or falter, a whole lot of other pieces of your company, your team, your workforce, your customers are in trouble. So once you're grounded and and able to mostly show up that way, then you're able to say, this is the mode we're in right now. And once you see that and can help your team understand that, then we can let go of what was in January. Not that that won't come back to help us again, but we have to be able to say we're in a new movie, a new moment now. And it's liberating because you stop thinking, oh my God, I need all this information because I don't have it right now, even though we used to make decisions on this extent of information and now we're making it on much less. So that, that, that covenant or that agreement to work in chaos, work in uncertainty, work in changing circumstances turns out to open up a lot of space in which you can be much more effective. And this is very quickly apparent. Listening to you makes me just want to like throw back my shoulders a little bit and jump in there. Yeah. So Nelson Mandela, back to it. So now let me say a word about leaders anxiety because all your folks have anxiety. We all have anxiety. So Nelson Mandela, who I'm learning a lot about now for some teaching I'm going to do on courageous leadership, once said, courage is not the absence of fear. This is to your point, Leslie. Courage is the willingness to walk into the fear with your shoulders back, your core tight, and in a sense, like you believe, even if you're really, really scared, that you're okay in that fear. You're grounded, you're ready. Once you, in a sense, once a leader's willing to do that, you discover in the fear, in the uncertainty and the anxiety of, oh my God, we're doing something very different than we did before. It's a big leap of faith. You discover not only that you're standing and the fear has therefore been dialed down, because you're standing and you're just fine, and, but also that your followers, your team members, are taking that first step behind you into the fear themselves. So the idea that leaders have to, in a sense, do a little bit of faking it till you make it, and that it's okay to be scared, even if it's not okay to talk to most of your followers about how anxious you are, is really also not only liberating, but empowering. So you talked about communicating, and in some ways, communicating, and then the, the third thing you talked about, which is to have a response and to provide some credible hope. Those things are, seem incredibly important, especially right now, while you can't stand in front of your team. Yeah. They're spread out all over the place. Okay. So how do you see communication as being an important part of this? It's so important because people are just desperate for guidance and leadership integrity, stewardship. They're just, they're so thirsty for it. We're, we're in these very uncertain, very unknown waters and we're looking for lighthouses. Well, what are leaders? All good leaders are lighthouses. Whether they know it or not, that's the, that is part of what they do for people. David Foster Wallace was an American writer who I quote at the very beginning of my book. I once wrote that, that real leaders are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own laziness and selfishness and weakness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. And people don't think of a leader as doing that for them, but that's why they're putting their trust, steering their ship toward that lighthouse. They want leaders who are going to say, we can get through this. I can get through this. Abraham Lincoln says the nation is going to heal and we're going to get, we're going to get through this bloody war. And then people can actually find the strength in themselves to do the harder, better things. Sometimes that's as simple as I'm not going to, you know, go hoard groceries from the, from the grocery store because other people need to shop too, to I'm going to, I'm really anxious today, but I'm going to go ahead and get my, get my work done. So, so leaders are incredibly important and influential. 
in the chief light bulb or ray of illumination that a leader has in this moment is less their actions. They're critical. They're absolutely essential. But for pe- most people following that leader, particularly people that are a layer or two removed from the senior people in a company, that's communication. And that is how that leader is showing up, what they're saying, the combination of what I like to say, the kind of balance sheet, brutal honesty, all the liabilities and the assets, credible hope that they're offering, and just the kind of energy that they're putting forth. People take a lot of their cues from the energy of a leader. Notice I'm sitting up straight. It's like in, here in, in, in this recording, I'm telling, telling your listeners, I'm sitting up straight and tightening my core because those kind of cues, even on a Zoom meeting, when you only see you know, just from the kind of shoulders up of a person, they send cues too. So all of that communication is helping people in very powerful ways do harder, better things in their lives and as, as either clients or constituents or employees of the company every day. So let's talk about brutal honesty and credible hope, which sound like sometimes polar opposites. Not always, but sometimes they feel that way. And they sure in the first blush, they can very much appear to be. I'm just thinking of Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who I think is one of these people that didn't have a track record of great crisis leadership. I'm sure he dealt with crises, he had a story, or he had, a, he had an extensive career in government service, public service, but he certainly wasn't on my radar screen. I knew, his, I knew of his father. Well, he's just stepping up his game every day. And it's not a political comment. It's a, it's a, it's a comment from a leadership expert. And every day, it, the news has gotten better out of New York in terms of the numbers. He has very set numbers he presents every day. So it begins with hospitalizations. It moves to ICU and intubations. By the fourth or fifth slide, it gets to death. That is brutal honesty. Here's what the numbers are, right? And, and he doesn't present them in a cold way. He talks about what it means each, with each slide every day. So if you're just tuning in today, you understand what it means because he explains it to have fewer intubations or more intubations putting people on ventilators. So that brutal honesty is sometimes hard to take. And let me tell you, two weeks ago, I've been watching his broadcast for 40 days. Two weeks ago, those numbers were just unbe- they're still unbelievable. But they were much, much worse. And he had a hospital system that was just on the brink of being overwhelmed uh, in downstate New York. And you'd listen to them. And I live in Boston. I would think about the sirens that most New Yorkers in lots of densely populated parts of the state and in other parts are hearing. And you just think, this is so hard. How can this be so awful? But, but every day you watch the numbers and you trusted him to give you those numbers. And so you knew as as a listener or a watcher, a resident of New York, a healthcare worker, you knew what was happening to the incidence of the disease and all that flowed from it. People need that brutal honesty. The news from France is very bad, said Churchill, you know, before Dunkirk in 1940 in this extraordinary evacuation, which threatened to, you know, destroy the British army. So, People need, they want to hear what the state of the union is, what the state of the company is. That brutal honesty is critical to their trust and their sense of respect and faith in the leader. And then as part of that brutal honesty, here's how we're responding to the different challenges presented by the state of the union, so to speak. That combination, those are all your liabilities and your responses to them, is then offset or balanced by, is a better word, by the credible hope. Here are the resources we bring to this. Here are a few victories, even if they're a story of an astounding healthcare worker or, you know, a person driving a bus who moves doctors back and forth to hospitals. 
these stories of individual courage are incredibly important and they're part of Credible Hope because they help us realize that if these people have this kind of courage, I can summon up the courage I need to do what I need to do. And what I can do to help people more vulnerable than I, because that's also part of Credible Hope, the responsibility that rests in any crisis on people who are more fortunate to help those who are less fortunate or, or more vulnerable to the disease in this case. I assume too that this is an opportunity for a lot of leaders to look into their organizations and figure out how to foster some leadership at lower levels. It is. A lot of it you don't have time to do in a kind of developed institutional, traditional, business-as-usual way. But there are two ways, I think, that senior leaders help leaders throughout the chain of, of command or of the, organ, of the structure of the organization. And one is by, by just showing up in your, with your best self as much as you can. Because remember, all eyes are on you. They're always on you, but they're on you with more kind of acuity and more intensity than they were six months ago, three months ago. So people are learning watching you. That's, that's one piece, a lot more than you realize. And second, you, in a sense, give people permission to lead. You have to you know, expand, I think, the realm of authority. You have to give people room to improvise and experiment because a lot of what you'll do in terms of solving all these problems or untying these knots is improvisational, right? You're doing it. We've got to solve this. Well, we're going to pull all these people together. I mean, think of what's happening now around the country in terms of task force trying to develop large-scale, reliable testing, both for the, the COVID-19 and for its antibodies. I mean, there's just all kinds of new connections, new experiments being made. And those are very, very important. And people will learn to lead in a learning-by-doing way in that improvisation. Well, it sounds like as terrible as a crisis like this is, it offers a lot of opportunity for leaders to hone their skills and step up. It does. It does. I mean, it comes at a fearsome cost here, right? Because this is such a deadly enemy that we're such a monster enemy that we're facing. I, I lost my best friend the first week we went into shelter at home orders here in Boston, a 56 year old man who died very quickly of COVID-19, healthy, strong. But it's such a moment for new possibilities for boundary breaking, not only in terms of the kind of people that work together and how they work together, but in what we can do as leaders, even even people who've not thought of themselves as leaders can answer the call, get in the game, and make a huge difference. Just think about these stories we're reading of, you know, women, for the most part, women all over the country, you know, making masks and getting them to people. All kinds of people putting, you know, companies putting manufacturing facilities to work, making medical parts, including uh, medical technologies, including ventilators. I mean, these are things that have never happened before. And people are being called to do things in a brand new way. And in that, they're being forged as better leaders just by virtue of the demands that are being made on them and their willingness to answer that call. So I could not agree with you more, Leslie, that it is as difficult as it is, as, as, as terrible as it is it, for many, many people. It, it is still a moment of extraordinary possibility that will carry over in terms of what leaders learn, how these new leaders emerge, how existing leaders get better, that will carry over into our future and what we can become that's better as a result of this crisis. Nancy, thanks so much for talking to us about it. I'm so appreciative. It's my sincere pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nancy. You can find her book, Forged in Crisis, anywhere books are sold. We talked last week with IBJ reporter Susan Orr after the Paycheck Protection Program ran out of money. 
Now, Congress has made $310 billion more available. So let's check in with Susan again about how long the new round of funding might last. Thanks for joining us, Susan. Anytime, Leslie. So today was a big day in the PPP program. First of all, remind us what that is and and what happened today. Oh, well, uh, PPP stands for Paycheck Protection Program, and it's part of the larger federal coronavirus relief package that um, was passed recently. The first round was $349 billion available to small businesses, and this is businesses with 500 or fewer employees, and it was uh, intended to sort of help them keep afloat through these lean times, and if they uh, spent the money on certain approved uses, the loan would potentially be 100% forgiven. So there was just a huge demand, and that initial pool of funding ran out, I think, in 13 days. Today was a big deal because Congress appropriated another $310 billion. And uh, this morning at 10.30 was when they turned back on the, the pipeline for um, banks to apply on behalf of their clients. And how did it go today? You know, I talked to a number of banks or people that work with banks and small businesses, and it sounded like it was somewhat chaotic, but that was also somewhat expected. So the site went live at 10.30. Um, I got a report that it crashed like within 15 minutes of, of launching and that like two hours later, it was still down. I'm not sure as of late afternoon Monday, I'm not sure where, where things stand now. But basically, if you think of like the Oklahoma land rush, everybody's rushing to get their stake of this limited resource. And that's kind of where I'm at. I talked to a couple of small business owners that either have a loan application in the pipeline and just missed out the first time or for whatever reason are resubmitting this time around. One one big uncertainty I heard from them is even if they're approved, the big question is where am I in the pipeline? Because if there's only money to fund X number of approvals, that means that not everybody that's approved necessarily is going to get money. So they that's a big uncertainty too. And there's really no doubt that they'll run out of money again. Is that right? Yes. The the first go-around of funding ran through in 13 days. I've seen some guidance that said it might be two or three days this time around. And are most banks taking new applications? Uh, I think it varies from bank to bank. I know that, um, I mean, Chase is probably the biggest, and uh, they just flat out have issued a statement that says, we're not accepting new applications. We might at some point, if there's more money, But right now, we're going to just deal with getting the ones through that have already submitted. So a lot of banks, even though the last couple of weeks there hasn't been money, there's been the anticipation that there will be more money. So a lot of them, you know, that maybe are submitting new applications have been working with clients to get things together in the interim so that they could all jump as soon as possible. Well, Susan, thanks so much for catching us up. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Leslie. Thanks for tuning in this week to IBJ's Beyond COVID podcast. You can find it at IBJ.com every Tuesday or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Podbean. You can also check out the latest episode of the IBJ podcast, hosted by Mason King. This week, Mason explores the steps that restaurants and offices are considering as they contemplate reopening and what it will take to make employees and customers feel safe. Tune in at ibj.com or anywhere you download podcasts. And if you want to see all of IBJ's coronavirus coverage, just go to ibj.com slash coronavirus. See you next week.